0: Uh, I've got some slides I'm going to show you. You might be wondering why I'm starting off with a faceless girl, right? So this girl, um, Paul and I nicknamed Kit Kat. She was our first and only um, foster care kid that we had when we lived in Minnesota. Now, let me just say this. I've made some of you nervous right now, because you're like, is he a Minnesotan? Like, did we let him in our church? No, not at all, right? Uh, Paul and I grew up in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, or the Sheboygan area, and we met over 30 years ago in Narcotics Anonymous. So what I'm talking about today, I come from a real place in my history, and, and it's personal in that sense, and in fact, If I don't use today, uh, tomorrow will be my 32nd anniversary of being clean, right? And so, I mean, thank you. But let's give credit where credit is due. That is because of Christ, right? We know that. Okay, so... Kit Kat, nine-year-old girl, we started doing respite care for her before we were actually licensed to do foster care, which, you know, we were in the process of doing, and just fell in love with this kid. She is super smart, super personable. Um, How many of you play Settlers of Catan? You know what I'm talking about? Yes, my people. All right. The first night we taught her how to play Settlers, she almost beat us. Right? I, I, I had to play like 12 games before I beat other adults. And she almost beat us the first night. I mean, that's how brilliant this kid is. In fact, they would label her sometimes as 2E. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, twice exceptional. So exceptional abilities, but also exceptional disabilities. Uh, Kit Kat had a RAD diagnosis, Reactive Attachment Disorder. And if you know anything about the prognosis for somebody with a RAD diagnosis, it's not good. Uh, In fact, relationship is really hard, uh, have a hard time understanding, things like that, right? So we start doing respite for her, and she needs a full-term place to live. And we're like, this kid just fits in our family. We could envision a future with her, with us until Christ comes back, or we die, or whatever, right? So we say to the county, yes, we will totally take her, and we get licensed, and the day we do, all three of us celebrate our older kids. um, We have two biological children. They're 26 and 28 now. They loved Kit Kat. They'd come home on the weekends and help minister to her, and those sorts of things, right? And so things started off good, but we knew, like, the Hulk was inside of her. That's what I kind of call it, That that she had some um, issues, right? And her one job in order to stay with us was go to school. You just have to go to school in the morning. We both have full-time jobs, right? Just go to school and and everything will be great. The only expectation. And unfortunately, as the days turned into a couple of weeks, her willingness to go to school started to wane and pretty soon we're calling the social worker in the morning, she's refusing to go to school and the social worker said, "Well, call the police." And I'm kind of like and, and, and I did ride-alongs. I was a chaplain myself when I was a pastor for 20 years. And, and the police aren't trained to handle a nine-year-old who won't go to school, right? Like, the, they don't get that kind of training and stuff. And I'm not saying this disparagingly against the police, okay? But, but that was sort of the solution. And that didn't really go well. And as things started to melt down in the next month or two, it just really became apparent that Kit Kat needed 24-7 full-time care. So, that if she couldn't get to school that morning, hey, that's okay, and we'll just wait till you kind of calm down or maybe go to school the next day or whatever. And we weren't able to provide that for her. And so, the last I knew, she was in a residential treatment facility for a 30 day Uh, inpatient evaluation. They think there's a lot more mental health issues going on with her than what she was initially diagnosed with, and then it came to the point that we just weren't able to take care of her, and so um, her social worker last I heard said they're going to recommend residential treatment to her, and if she goes in, she's probably not going to come out until she ages out at 18 or 21 years old. Now, here's the thing. When Kit Kat came to us, nine years old, she had been in the foster care system since she was five, and we were her 13th placement. And when I tell average people that, you know what the first question they say to me is? What was wrong with her? And I'm like, wait, what was wrong with the nine-year-old that she had to live in 13 different places in four years? Like, you think that's her fault somehow? Right? I just broke my heart. So when it was determined that she wasn't going to stay with us, Paul and I had to pack her stuff up. She came with actually a lot of stuff. In fact, we had to weed a bunch of it out even and things. But, but we were in our room that night and packing the storybooks that we'd read before bed every night and, and, and pulling down the picture frames with the pictures of the new things we had done since we had known her for the last few months and stuff. And Paul and I are just both weeping, uh, bawling uncontrollably at some points because it broke our heart, God has given me a supernatural love for this kid, and now I feel like I've left my daughter in Minnesota, and I just, there's nothing else I can do about it at this point, right? So what we're going to talk about today is personal, it's real, and it's happening every single day here in the Fox Cities area as well, right? The hard part after this was, do I want to open my heart up to this again? Right, because post KitKat leaving, it just felt like PTSD, and 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 it, and I'm the kind of person that if it hurts, I'm just gonna phew, lock everything down and and shut off myself, right? And so the challenge is, am I going to open up my heart again? We're going to look at Scripture this morning, and and a very similar challenge: Am I willing to help others? right? Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you be the true teacher and preacher through the power of the Holy Spirit. The very words that come out of my mouth this morning might be ordained by you. And Father, I really pray that you'd help us not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers too. And I'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 25. Super familiar passage here. Uh, let's read through it, and then we're going to come back and sort of crunch it down a little bit. So it's Luke chapters 10, starting in verse 25. Let me give you a second to go there. You know, old school, you would just listen until the majority of the pages stopped turning, then you know everybody was kind of there. New school, on touchscreens, I'm like, I don't know if you're there or not, you know. All right, here we go. So we pick up the story, and it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So this lawyer is putting Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, and now the very famous story, right? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by a chance, a priest was coming down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I just want to stop for a second, because I've got a picture here for you. It says when he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, like you and I might say, hey, I'm going down to Milwaukee today, or I'm going up to Krivitz, or wherever you go up to, I don't really know, right? And, and, and we're kind of talking north-south, right? But in Israel, they're literally talking up and down. You can see kind of up on the top of the mountains is where Jerusalem was located, about 2,500 feet above sea level, and Jericho was almost 1,000 feet below sea level. So it's like a 3,500-foot drop from the top of the mountain to go down to Jericho, right? And I got a picture of the road here for you. You can see people walking that road today, and I think road is too strong of a term, really, right? This is more like a path where you could maybe probably pass somebody walking in single file, but that's about it. And notice the terrain, by the way. When you look at paintings, and I'm going to show you one a little bit later and stuff, it looks much more like a European setting or something you'd see in Wisconsin with trees and a forest and stuff. But this is really what it looks like. I mean, this is rough terrain, rough territory. In fact, Josephus, who was a first-century historian uh, for uh, Israel, he he was born right after Jesus died and then lived for whatever it was, 50, 60 years, and he wrote a lot about Jewish history and about the times of Christ and those things, and he said that after Herod the Great finished building the temple in Jerusalem, the one that Jesus would have known and worshipped and stuff like that, he released like 40,000 men. And a lot of them didn't have jobs, so guess what they did? They hung out and hid in places like this and robbed people. So Jesus telling this story about a man going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, everybody would have been like, oh, yep, that road, dangerous, right? In fact, in Josephus' day, they called it the bloody way, right? That's that's the nickname that it had, okay? So, this guy is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls among robbers who strips him and beats him and leaves him dead. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. Okay? Now Here's that other painting I was going to show you. Notice the nice greenery and the pretty trees and all that, like not even close to what the real setting is. But what I love about this painting is you can see the priest already further down the road, and you can see the teacher of the law kind of standing right there, the Levite, and then the Good Samaritan helping this guy. Now, if you know things about Bible history, right, the Samaritans were half-breeds, they were half-Jewish, and half other nations, and so actual full-blooded Jews down in Jerusalem didn't like the Samaritans, and in fact, they would avoid them like the plague, and Jesus uses Samaritans a lot in his stories, because it would have been like a dun-dun-dun, when he says, you know, then the Samaritan came, they was like, gasp, Right? Like, these are the people we really don't like. And now that person is the, the, not only the focus of the story, but kind of like the hero in the story too, okay? And so the Samaritan comes down, and when he sees them, Scripture says he has compassion on him. Compassion in Bible terms is always seeing that person and seeing their hurts, but then having the desire to do something about it. If you just see someone and acknowledge those hurts, but you don't have the desire to do something about that, that's not compassion. That's what we would call pity, right? This is like I'm sitting at home eating dinner, and I might be watching TV, and a commercial comes on about those poor starving kids in Africa, and I'm like, oh, those poor kids, that's awful. Honey, pass the mashed potatoes. And I just move on with my life. That's just pity. Compassion actually does something about it. And so he has compassion on this guy, and so he went to him, and now I numbered this in my notes, okay, because he did a bunch of things. Number one, he went to him (laughs) because the the priest didn't do that, and the Levite, the temple worker, they didn't go to him. They avoided him like the plague. But the Samaritan goes to him, binds up his wombs, pouring on oil and wine, and that you can see what's happening right now, Then he sets him on his own animal, brings him to an inn, took care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii. A denarii was equivalent of a day's wages, so two days' worth of wages he pulls out, and he gives it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back, right? Now, at this point, there's a lot of speculation, like, why didn't the priest stop, and why didn't the Levite stop, and I heard all kinds of things, like, well, you know, the priest probably just got done with his priestly duties, and they would go down to Jericho and hang out, and he was busy and had a place to go, or they didn't want to get defiled because they thought he was dead, and if you touch dead bodies, you're defiled as a priest and stuff, right, and there's all kinds of speculation written about this, and here's what I want to say about this, it isn't a true story, And the only reason i'm saying this is that this is a parable and a parable has one main point to it right if everything in the story relates to some real life thing we call that an allegory and this is way different and so many times i read and hear people talking as if this actually really happened and like these are real people and they're not right one main point and we're going to get to that in just a second But notice, Jesus says, this guy goes out of his way to take care of this guy. So that compassion turns into action, and not just a little bit. Not just some polite little action, right? I was in... Atlanta, Georgia. This was years ago. How many of you remember like Promise Keepers, the Promise Keepers movement back in the day, right? Okay, so I we went to a lot of those things. They had a special Promise Keepers in Atlanta, Georgia, for clergy and pastors and stuff like that. And so I was lucky enough to go to that. In fact, I was just in Bible college myself at that point, studying to be a pastor. And and after one particular night of just epic worship and stuff. You know, we go outside. It was in the Georgia Dome, and and right across the street is like the CNN Center, and there's like restaurants and shops and all that kind of stuff, right? And so there's thousands of men, and after worship and stuff, out on the streets looking for places to eat, and and we were really struggling, and we kept walking and looking, and all of a sudden, I hear somebody say kind of behind me, my buddy's like, excuse me. And I turn around, and here's somebody who looks homeless and, and is asking for food, right? And so I'm usually not a, here's money for you, because I don't know what you're going to spend that on, right? So I'm like, hey, I'll go buy dinner, and let's hang out. And so said that to him, hey, come with us. We'll get you some food. Sure, he was willing to do that. Well, we go to the CNN Center, and the line for McDonald's was over an hour long because so many people were there. And I'm like, I'm not willing to wait an hour for McDonald's. And we went to a couple other places, and finally we couldn't just get anywhere. And so I just thought I'm going to break my rule here and I'm going to just give him some money and just whatever God, pray for the best, right? And so I reach into my pocket and I pull out a single dollar and a $5 bill. And the battle starts in my mind, right? Because I'm hungry and I want to eat, but if I give him $5, that means I have a dollar. But if I give him a dollar and I keep five for me, like what kind of human being am I? And especially what kind of Christian am I, right? I'm just curious, how many of you think I handed him the five dollar bill? This, this random poll. It's okay, you can vote. You're not gonna hurt my feelings. How many of you think I handed him the one dollar bill? You know. How many of you don't want to vote because you're just polite people and you're afraid to? I don't know. Okay, all right, all right. I handed him the one dollar bill and walked away, right? And in that moment, as I was walking away, it almost felt like the Holy Spirit just sort of kind of grabbed me right here and was kind of like, you know when Jesus says to the disciples, are you still that dull? Like, like that's kind of how it went for me that day. Like, Tom, are you still that dull? Right? And unfortunately, that's not compassion. Right? That, that's me doing as little as I can to get by to try to kind of appease my conscience and say, okay, I did something now. Great. That's not what this guy does in the story. He goes full bore and above and beyond to take care of them. Now, now we get to the point of all this, right? If you want to know the point of the good Samaritan, here it comes. Jesus asked this lawyer who's trying to justify himself, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Now, it's interesting. In the Jewish mind in those days, neighbor meant other Hebrews. That's who they see as their neighbor, Right, And think about it, in the Hebrew mind, there were Jews and then everybody else. And they all got one label, which was Gentiles, right? That's how they saw the world. There's us and everybody else. And so this Hebrew's word for neighbor would have been like, okay, just my fellow man and that's it. It's interesting because the Hebrews in this story didn't stop to help their neighbor even in their own worldview, right? It was a Samaritan who's outside of their worldview who stops and helps. So Jesus says to this guy, well, okay, who do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, verse 37, the lawyer gets the point, and he says, the one who showed him mercy. Now, one, one Russ said this, which I thought was brilliant. He didn't say the Samaritan, Right? Like, like, he almost couldn't say that. The, the, so, 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 the other, you know, right? Like, like, he didn't want to speak Samaritan. It was just like the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. I mean, that's the main point, right? That's the main point. You go and do likewise. So... Too often, we think about neighbor even more narrowly than the Hebrews did in their day. If I say to you, who's your neighbor, what are you most likely kind to start to think of? In our culture, who's neighbor? It, it can be really narrow. Well, the people that live on either side of my house, those are my neighbors. And now we're down to just like a couple of people, not even a whole nation or something. We might think of it as like our neighborhood, although I don't know about you, but like the last house we lived in, we knew the neighbors. We talked to them, I think, twice in three years that we lived there or something, you know, and and, and someone had a garage sale, and you might chat for a minute like, oh, I'm your neighbor or whatever. But I certainly didn't know anybody two or three houses down from me. Like, I never talked to any of them. So even neighborhood was sort of like, okay, yeah, this is our neighborhood, but I don't really know these people. I love it. Mother Teresa said, sometimes, she said, the problem with the world is that we draw the circle of family too small. And I'm going to change that quote up just a little bit. And the trouble with the world, at least from this perspective of scriptures, we, we draw the neighbor circle too small. And we have to widen and expand that. And Jesus says, look, your neighbor is anybody you pass by who needs help. Anybody that you encounter, that's your neighbor. It doesn't matter if they're Jewish or not. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or not, right? That we need to go and do likewise. So I want to talk to you this morning about an opportunity to go and do likewise. Now, I'll be super honest. When I stopped here a couple months ago, and I was kind of just popping in on churches because I'm a former pastor, and I know just the best way to reach them is just to show up, right? Just kind of hope they're there and show up. And so nobody was here, but then I thought, oh, I'm going to call. And I got Pastor Landon, and, and we chatted for a little bit, and I checked out the church and stuff, and I'm like, oh, these are the kinds of people that I want to talk to, right? Because you're kind of already doing it, as we saw in your slides this morning and about food shelters and clothing things and hosting people from the Congo and stuff. I'm like, yes, all right, this is awesome, okay? So i want to show you another opportunity potentially to go and do likewise. I work for Safe Families for Children, and as Pastor Landon said, we're a national organization, in fact, international, we're in three other countries besides the United States. I was hired in February to get this chapter up and running. Now, let me say this. I get hired in February, do my orientation and stuff, and blessed in this chapter because some people laid the groundwork for this chapter before I got here, and part of that framework was they had three churches on board and a grant from the Community Foundation of the Fox Cities for $300,000. $100,000 a year for three years. When Some of the other chapter directors that I talk with now hear that. They're like, what? Because <laughs> they started with nothing right, so I love coming to churches and say, look, I'm not even after money right now, and we talk about that down the road, right, but I've got funding for like three years, and we're not parachurch, I really want to stress this, a parachurch organization, in fact, the word parachurch means to come alongside the church, and so a lot of parachurch organizations do their ministry outside of the context of the local church, and they just ask the church people to come and volunteer, parachurch is like, we're the ones who do it, we're the ones who are experts, and you just kind of come and volunteer, right? That's not what we are. We come into the local church and provide structure and support. So the best way for me to tell you what Safe Families does is just to show you our little chart here, okay? So just work with me. We work with families in crisis. The number one reason people come to us is because of homelessness, And then the second reasons are they're having some sort of mental health or medical emergency and they need a temporary place for their kiddos to go. So we have host families that will work with, um, with those placing parents, we'll call them, right, those families who are struggling. Our families who are in crisis are usually socially isolated, So let me just give you an example from real world right here in the Twin, or I was going to say Twin Cities, Fox Cities. This is Wisconsin, right? Okay. So, uh, how many of you know Christ the Rock Church, right? So they do a ministry where women will go into the clubs, the dancing clubs, and minister and make friendships and that sort of stuff, right? Okay. So I was talking to Pastor Deb, who's in charge of their counseling ministry and, and does outreach and all so those sorts of things, and she said, and this was earlier this year, and she said, oh, man, if you're up and running, I had, I had a, a case that you could have taken right away. And she said, one of the moms called me, and she had to have surgery, and she's going to be out for about three weeks, and because she doesn't know anybody here, like, she has nowhere for her kids to go. And so everybody who knew her told her, well, you're just going to have to call the county. And I'm just curious. How many of you think a mom who's dancing in the clubs wants to call the county and say, I can't take care of my kids? Like, they're not going to do that, right? And the danger potentially is now those kids may end up in a place that isn't safe. Seen it over the years. Worked worked with people over the years who, well, I need somebody, and so now I'm going to put my kids, and maybe that person isn't safe to watch them in the first place, right? So that's the kinds of stuff that we deal with. But not only that, as Pastor Landon said, Autogame County is desperate to work with us. And let me tell you why. Melissa Blum, who runs Child, Youth, and Family Services for Outagami County, which includes CPS and foster care and those kinds of things, um, we're working with her right now. In fact, she's on our advisory council as well, and we're finalizing what they call an MOU, if you're not familiar with that, Memorandum of Understanding. It's not quite a contract, but it's a, it's a, we sign it and say, here's how our relationship's going to be, and here's what we'll do, and here's what we won't do, and that sort of stuff. And the space she wants us in is here. Last year in Outagamie County, there were 4,000 reports to CPS. Now, can you just stop and think about that for a second, right? So 365 days in a year, if you had to investigate those 4,000 reports, that's more than 10 reports a day you'd have to investigate. I'm just curious. Could you imagine trying to even investigate five reports for one day to figure out is abuse and neglect happening to these kiddos and what do we need to do, and, right, let alone 10 a day? Out of those 4,000, 1,000 they screened in. That's their lingo. And what that means is they said these cases were bad enough. We need to intervene. 3,000 of those cases got screened out, which meant that from the, the way end that it wasn't legit and someone had called and said, oh, my neighbor's house is a hoarder. And then they go and there's like three things out of place and whatever, right? It's like, no, that's that's not neglect level. Or... The, all the way to, they were just on the edge of having to go in the system, but it wasn't quite bad enough. That's the space that Outagamie County wants us in. Now, again, think about this. The church so often spends so much money and time and resources trying to reach out to people, right? Here's our events, or we're doing this thing, or come into this. Or, and and in, uh, here in Outagamie County, they want to send us people, potentially thousands, you see what I'm saying? It's amazing, and so we work with these families in crisis. If kiddos need to be hosted and temporarily placed, we put them with a host family. Now, the parent retains custody of their children. This is voluntary, so that parent can come back anytime and just say, "We want our kid back." We try to get a 24 to 48 hour notice just to get everybody prepared, right? But then we encourage that host family to build relationship with those placing parents. And this is where we're different. We can build relationship, and even after they're done with our services, we can encourage that relationship to continue. Relationship is what changes people. It's not programs. Programs can provide things that are needed, right? But think about this. Relationship is the whole basis of the Bible. Love God, love your neighbors yourself right? If it was program, God could have just said, oh, you believe in me? Here's the Bible. Just read it. Here's everything you need to know. And we wouldn't have to have fellowship, right? God tends to work through his people. And so we encourage those relationships to happen. Then we surround both the family in crisis and the host family with what we call a circle of support that starts with a family coach. And all these positions that I'm labeling here are voluntary, Like, nobody gets paid for this. They're doing it because they love Christ, right? So the family coach is sort of the quarterback who runs the whole operation when we have a hosting. They go and make sure that that kiddo's doing well with that host family within the first 48 hours of a placement, and then every week after that. They also talk to the host family and find out, hey, how can we help you and support you? Because let's face it, this is not a Disney movie endeavor. Just want to knock that out of our heads right now. This is tough. This is hard. It's painful sometimes, as I already told you about, with our own experiences working with this. Right? And we all love to think, oh, you just love this kid for a little bit, and then suddenly, poof, everything's better, and it's just all happily ever after. It's not always the case. Okay, So that family coach wants to make sure that host family is doing well. We always do a debriefing after every hosting with everybody involved with that hosting, making sure everybody's doing okay, maybe need some time off or something. We're totally okay. We support that. But then the family coach also works with the family in crisis. So any place in parent has to have at least one goal they're working towards, whether I'm hoping to have a successful recovery from surgery or I'm hoping to find an apartment or a job or whatever the case may be. In other words, this is not free babysitting. Just drop off your kids for a month, go do whatever you want, and then come back and get them. That, that's not what we're about. And for us, working with agencies, we're not free babysitting for them either. One of our referral musts is we need to be have access to parents who want to have relationship if they don't then that's not a good referral for us okay so that family coach then can pull in extra supports both for a host family or a family in crisis. And those extra supports come in two forms. A family friend, so that's somebody who says, well, I don't want to host kids in my home full time, but I could do some respite for a host family for a weekend or babysitting for a couple hours during the day or I could get that, those kids a ride to school or pick them up after school or I could bring that host family a meal or, you know, different things like that. The family friends can also work with a family in crisis. I can help that mom do a resume or I can get her rides to job opportunities or something like that. Not every relationship includes hosting of kids. So the first uh, hosting that we're actually working on is a UWGB student. And so University of Wisconsin Green Bay, right, heard about us and they're like, hey, can you help? We have this girl, 19-year-old, college, traumatic past, all that stuff. And so we're working to get her a family friend to help her. And we do that. In fact, kids who are placing aging out of foster care, we have a special mentoring program for them. And so we try to build relationships with those kiddos that are maybe a year or two away from aging out so that they have that, that, that support once they get out. Um, and that, so that family friend helps, intervenes, and then we have resource friends, and they're kind of like, I'm not really going to work with people, but I would buy some packing plays, or I would get some diapers, or you know, I could fix that mom's car, or that host family's van, or whatever, and so they provide goods and services also. Now, where do we get all these people? Well, I think you probably figured this out already, from the local church, yay! <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, We are, as uh, you heard Pastor Lennon say, unapologetically Christian organization. And the reason I'm saying that is because a lot of times there are faith-based organizations that start out in the name of Jesus, but then the mission overtakes the message, so to speak. And pretty soon we're doing all kinds of good stuff, but you're not really hearing about Jesus anymore. And we're not going to be that here in the Fox Cities. Other chapters sometimes get close. I, I, I'm just going to be honest with you, all right? And in fact, other organizations hear about us and they want to join. I've already had non-believers say to me, hey, can I join? Because they love what we're doing, right? And I'm like, okay, hmm. And there's, there's got to be a space in there for you somewhere, resource friend, maybe a family friend or something like that. But I want to work with churches that I wouldn't call life-giving churches and this is not my term, someone I think was Ed Savoso coined it in a book years ago, but the idea is if we have a family in crisis or we have some kiddos that want to know about Jesus, they can have the opportunity to hear the gospel and become born again, right? And some chapters take churches that I'm not even, you probably would never hear that much about Jesus. In fact, in Milwaukee, in our chapter down there, a bunch of um, Islamic churches heard about what we were doing, and they approached the Milwaukee chapter and said, hey, can we join you? Why can't we do this? And I was like, well, because we have a different worldview about Jesus, that's why. And if you want to start your own thing, great, go for it, man. But, you know, so uh, we're looking for, I am, places like this where if someone's interested, they can hear the gospel. Because we know if I just bandage up your wounds or I just give you a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, and I don't potentially help you with spiritual, that that's just temporary. And then the eternal potentially is still lost. And so we want to make sure we can try to get to eternal too. So we are, I am, looking at churches and trying to build that network. Now, when I started, they had Appleton Alliance Church on board. They had um, St. Peter slash the core on board, which is, they're calling themselves 922 Ministries now. Um, and then also they had the Missions Church on board. So in February, I get hired to start this chapter, do all my sort of, you know, training and stuff. And in March, I'm ready to roll. And then guess what happens? <laughs> A pandemic, like... And now all these churches are scrambling just to figure out how to even have church, how to get online, all that kind of stuff. So it was tough in the beginning. Like I could barely get churches to even return phone calls or stuff like that. But in the last few weeks, I've had yeses from Christ the Rock, from Calvary Bible, from uh, Valley Baptist, if you know them as well. You guys came on board and said, yeah, come talk, talk to the people and let's see what happens and let's see who's interested. And so what I'm really looking for today, more than anything, is a ministry lead. And what that person does is they act as the go-between between between my office and pastor and leadership here at the church. And they say, yeah, we're going to totally take this as one of the ministries of our church, and we're going to build up this network. Now, here's the interesting thing. A, it's not going to cost you anything. We cover all the costs. B, it's not going to add any administrative work to your plate. We do all the trainings of the host families. We do background checks and fingerprinting and FBI-level research on them. And then we do um, all the intake. So when someone calls or we get a referral saying this person needs help, we handle all that as well, right? Which I love to tell the church, too. We say we're a volunteer organization that's professionally supported. The professional support side is we do all the logistics and that, and the church does all the loving of the people. Okay, so looking for somebody to be a ministry lead here who says, Yeah, I'll totally take this up, and, and uh, God has prepared me for such a time as this and is willing to step up. Now, in the other churches, who are those ministry leads? Well, in some of those churches, they have large staff, and a couple of the staff people are the ministry leads. In one church, it's a 60-year-old retired teacher who went to her volunteer outreach coordinator and said, you know, I worked with kids for 60 years. Well, not quite that long. She's only 60, but whatever it is, right, 40 years. And I don't really want to work with kids directly anymore. What can I do? And that volunteer coordinator said, oh, I've got the job for you. And man, she's just running with this. In another church, it was a couple that I just finished interviewing and kind of talking to, and i got to wait to hear if they're going to do it. But I thought, that's great. It's could be a great thing for a husband and wife team, right, to, to come together. And another church, you can build a whole ministry lead team if you want. So they're working on building a team and some of those things. All I'm going to say is this. If you feel like ministry lead might be the space for you, talk to Pastor Landon, right? I'm not going to say, yeah, you should totally be the ministry lead here. I don't know you. I'm just going to be really honest, right? I I don't know. So, you know, church leadership picks the ministry lead and then we work together, okay? For the rest of this, if you're interested in this, you can apply today. Online, and and I've got more information out in the foyer, you can say, I want to be a host family, I want to be a family friend. And even if your church decides and doesn't get that ministry lead and doesn't kind of pull it off, if you decide you want to be a host family or family coach, we'll plug you in under another church then. And you can work in their network. We have churches that are going to take people from other churches and stuff too. So that's always a possibility as well. Um, And again, I have information on that out back. Now, quickly, I want to show you our core values. Go back to the Good Samaritan, okay? And think about this. And what Pastor Landon said all all morning. Our first core value is radical hospitality. Did you see that in the parable today? totally, right? Going above and beyond to take care of injured dude. The word hospitality in the New Testament is made up of two Greek words. The first word is phileo. Anybody familiar with that word, right? It's one of the Greek words for love, and it means brotherly love, hence Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, phileo. The second Greek word, it it means stranger, Honestly, I'd never looked this up as a pastor, and when I joined Safe Families, I'm like, is that legit? So I looked it up myself, and I'm like, it's actually legit. Like, way to go, Safe Families. All right. L- literally, the word hospitality in the New Testament, every time you see it there, even as a spiritual gift, literally means love of a stranger. How do we usually take hospitality in church, especially if we're talking spiritual gifts? Oh, I'm really good at making you as a church come over and feel welcome and getting you dinner and, you know, this is love of a stranger. And, and if, if we take a poll and like raise our hands, I'm not going to do that, but ask how many people are kind of afraid of strangers, and now, especially during the pandemic, see what I'm saying? This, this is why it's radical. Number two, compassion fueled by mercy. Mercy is, I, I'm going to give you what you don't necessarily even deserve. I don't know you. I'm not sure who you are but I'm going to act out because my heart breaks for you. And it's really not anything I've done. I don't have that kind of love in of myself, right? Where does it come from? Jesus, putting that in us. And then finally, disruptive generosity. Wait, you want me to have people come into my house and potentially stay there? And by the way, we normally host kiddos, but if you're willing to host family, adults, you can do that and save families. There's a place where you can check for us, hey, I'll host the mom or dad too. And I have some people that are interested in that, right? So this idea of disruptive generosity in the parable, was someone's life disrupted? <laughs> yeah, and, and yet he didn't and went for it. And so often we're so busy and doing our own thing, and really, I don't know if you've heard this, but lately there's been a lot of talk in the church that our homes have become our new places of idolatry, and along with that potentially our families like like no this this god doesn't get this is our our refuge this is our sanctuary we'll do stuff for god anywhere else but but this is our space really a friend invited me to read this book. I'm not recommending it for to you, by the way, just so you know, and there's some language issues and stuff. It, it's about a post-apocalyptic world, and it's called The Road, and it sort of opens with this man and his son traveling down this road in post-apocalyptic times, and it's chaos and mayhem and madness, and there are bad people on the road, and so dad's approach to life is protect his little son no matter what. And even if someone's hurting alongside the road, avoid them. Could be a bad person. Even if someone needs help and and reaches out, it could be a trap. Avoid them. All the while, his excuse for that was, we're the good guys. And ironically, an incident happens where a bad guy attacks them and has the son at knife point and the dad kills him. And then they're having this conversation around the campfire. And the dad says, you wanted to know what the bad guys look like? Because the boy was trying to figure this out, right? It's hard to tell a bad guy and a good guy just walking down the street. And he says, now you know. It may happen again. My job is to take care of you. I was appointed to do that by God. I will kill anyone who touches you. Do you understand? And the boy says, yes. And then the boy sat there, cowled in the blanket. After a while, he looked up are we still the good guys? And the dad said, yeah, we're still the good guys. The boy was struggling with, wait a minute, you just killed somebody. Like, like, does uh, how, are we still the good guys in this? And spoiler alert, if you don't, if you want to read the book, just put your fingers in your ear and go blah, blah, blah for a second, all right? In the end, as the dad is laying there dying, and this young boy has nobody else to live with, a family comes up over the hill, walking down the road, and the dad says, will you take my kid? And the family said, yes, we'll love him like our own. The good guys, right? Making that sacrifice. I'm looking for some good guys today. Now, let me just say this. You don't have to do safe families in order to be a good guy. Okay? It's not the division I'm trying to say. But as Christians, we can't walk down the road of life claiming to be the good guys and walk past the people who are laying there bleeding and dying. It just doesn't work, right? Let's pray. Lord, I just praise you for being here today. Father, we thank you for the work you're doing in Freedom Fellowship, and that started years ago with a heart to be the good guys, not only in, in, in word but in deed. And, and as we've seen this morning, there's already so many opportunities and ways that they're pulling that off. And Father, I just ask now, if, if there's anybody in our hearing this morning that needs to be involved with Safe Families from your perspective, make it clear to them. And Lord, we want people that this is your will for their lives. And Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us to remember we're the good guys, but, but that means action. It means uncomfortableness. It means sacrifice and potentially putting ourselves in danger even for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because you love people and you proved it on the cross. As we go today, I pray, open our eyes, Lord, to see the world as you do. And I'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm going to be out in the foyer in the back. I've got a little table set up. If you want more information, come see me. And, and I, if I have enough people interested in maybe uh, questions and answers and some of that kind of stuff, we can even do a Zoom meeting and invite you all in there, that sort of stuff. If you're interested in signing up for any of those positions, I've got a piece of paper that can tell you how to do it. It's just all done online. You can fill out the application at your you know, leisure. Um, and then Pastor Lennon has asked me to dismiss you. So, I'm going to have you rise. And let me pronounce a blessing for us. Father, I pray now that you would watch over us and keep us in the fellowship of your spirit. And Father, that you would help us to reach out in love to others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go in peace, have a wonderful day.